Welcome to RUF. Tonight, we come to one of the most pivotal sections of the David story. It spans seven chapters, 2 Samuel chapter 13 through 2 Samuel uh, chapter 19. And obviously, I can't preach on seven chapters of the Bible, though uh, tempted as I was to print that all out in your handout. So we're going to look at Psalm 63 tonight. And uh, I was hoping to do this all along in this series, to be able to look at a psalm. Uh, the Psalms, the Old Testament uh, hymn book, as it were. These are songs that the saints of the Old Testament, and even into the New Testament, and even the church today, still sing. And a great many of them were written by King David. Dave, King David was very much indeed the warrior poet. The great thing about the psalm is that uh, for some of them we know their settings, though we don't have to to be able to, to take them up as our own. Some of them we can take good guesses as to their settings. Tons of them written by David. This one explicitly we know when he wrote it. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. The, the superscript reads at the beginning of the psalm. This is in the midst of the story where we're going to pick it up tonight. The thing about psalms and most spiritual songs is they express in words inward spiritual realities. That's why we sing. That's why Christians and God's people of all time have always been a singing people. Because our songs express inward spiritual realities. And it's great for us to come to Psalm 63 tonight. Because in the midst of one of the most heartbreaking stories of the entire Bible... We get to see where David's heart was. So I want you to keep that in mind here as we read together Psalm 63. Let's read together Psalm 63. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. And all who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is God's word for us tonight. Let's pray before we look into it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant David. We thank you for his heart for you. Father, we thank you that David was a real person who struggled, who suffered, who was prideful, who was doubtful. Father, for a man that was just like us, would you show us ourselves tonight as we look at him? And would you speak to us words of truth and words of life, we pray. Amen. 
the turn of this century, uh, the early 2000s, nothing uh, encapsulated the boom or, or in pictured um, the economic boom and abundance of the 90s quite like the corporation Enron. I don't know if you've heard of Enron or studied about Enron in your classes. In 2000, Enron claimed $111 billion in revenues. It's a lot of money for paying attention. Six years in a row, they were named the most innovative uh, company by Fortune magazine. But in December 2001, they filed for bankruptcy, setting off one of the most complex bankruptcy cases in history. So the thing about Enron is as you looked at it from the outside, on the outside, Enron was the pinnacle of American innovation and success. But as the bankruptcy case and the criminal cases after it started to unfold, what we saw was that on the inside of Enron was actually a vile, rotten mess. Some 20,000 plus employees. Um, As the ever so insightful Wikipedia tells us, (laughs) I'm quoting Wikipedia tonight, Um, but it was a nice summary statement. The financial condition of Enron was sustained substantially by an institutionalized, systematic, and creatively planned accounting fraud. What was viewed by the world as one of the, if not the most successful companies in the history of America was propped up by an institutionalized, systematic, and creatively planned accounting fraud. Um, Once it represented great success, but now Enron only serves as a picture in the dictionary uh, for vast corporate fraud and corruption. There's something similarly haunting about the story of Enron with the story of David, I think, and our lives as well, if we're honest. And it's this. You can find yourself at the height of success. Uh, You can find yourself at the height of personal and professional success. Yet, at the same time, be completely empty inside. It's what we've seen happen to David the last few weeks, is it not? Yet, conversely, as we've also seen again and again, and we see it in this psalm, you can be in the midst of terrible circumstances, yet, at the same time, be emotionally full as I would suggest to you, we find David in Psalm 63. We looked a couple weeks ago, 2 Samuel 11. David had everything, literally everything he could ever want. But what we saw in 2 Samuel 11 was that David was an empty shell inside. So empty, so needy, that he had to take one of his most loyal men's own wife for his own. So needy that he had to cover the tracks, eventually leading to that same man's murder. The setting of this psalm is one of the saddest accounts in Scripture. David, we find once again in the wilderness, in the desert, once again on the run, fearing for his life and his future. And the saddest part about it all is that it all comes at the hands of his own son, Absalom. And so we come to a psalm and we know that that's the setting of betrayal and attempted assassinations By his son Absalom, what would you expect David to say in the midst of those circumstances? Especially given all that we've seen in his life to this point. On the outside, David's life was miserable, so we think. But what we see in Psalm 63 is that it actually sounds a lot like the David that we think of when we think of the biblical David, is it not? Um, 
Uh, someone in the back reminded me I may not be so Presbyterian anymore since I went from three to four points, but four points for you tonight. Because as we look at this psalm, we see an expression in words of inward spiritual realities of David. And what David actually pinpoints for us in this psalm is the four signs of a spiritual soul. In other words, in the four, there's four signs here that I think we can point to of where we, each of us, can take the psalm up to see where our soul is anchored. Okay? So I'm going to try to kind of cover the Absalom story as we look at the psalm. The first one that David pinpoint. Oh, and i got to give a shout-out uh, to a pastor named Scott Sauls, pastor of Christ President Nashville, for his very helpful sermon on Psalm 63. It's kind of my launching pad for the sermon tonight. Okay? The first one here is a, a thirsty soul. You look at verse 1. The imagery that sticks out from the outset... Uh, is this image that, that David says. He says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. So David's initial assessment of his spiritual state in this pivotal moment in his life is one of spiritual thirst. But not only is it spiritual thirst, it is an insatiable thirst for the things of God. It's the thirst of the things of God that without it, his flesh faints. He is nothing. He is wasting away without it. And so obviously this is an apt illustration because he's been driven out of Jerusalem. He's now back into the wilderness. You remember the same place where he was when Saul was after him. Now he's back there because his own son is after him. So it's actually a very apt illustration, this wilderness desert. Um, so basically David's physical, tangible circumstances, he is saying, are a living illustration to the spiritual reality that he is describing. Okay? But in looking to those circumstances, David does not speak of his physical needs, but actually says they actually only serve to be symbols of the state of his soul. Follow me here. And as we spent... Um, and, and so I just want to cover really quickly what got him here. And as I said, the Absalom story stretches seven chapters, Second Samuel 13 through 19. Um, one of the foundational stories of the David story is seven chapters long. And we spent the last two weeks studying um, what we spent studying with David's fall, his sin with Bathsheba, and the fallout from it. We know then that Second Samuel 13 through 19 is the direct consequence of David's sin with Bathsheba. Just to fly you through this account, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 13, we're introduced to Absalom by being told in the first verse of chapter 2 Samuel 13 that he had a beautiful, it says Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. We read throughout that chapter that another of David's sons, Amnon, who is Tamar's half-brother, loves her. He loves her so much, he's physically sick over it. He wants her so bad, he is physically sick from it. And so he schemes with one of his cousins a way to get her alone. And when she refuses him, he rapes her. David's son rapes David's daughter. Second Samuel 13. Absalom stews in anger for two years. Two years he does nothing, but he stews in his anger until the perfect time he invites all of his brothers, all the king's son, out to a sheep-shearing festival. And in the middle of it, he slaughters Amnon, kills his brother, and he flees into exile. Chapter 14, 
tells us that Absalom is in exile for three years for what he's done. And finally, someone else convinces David to go out to him and bring him back to Jerusalem. And so we read that Absalom is brought back into Jerusalem, but we're also explicitly told that David would not let him come into his presence for two years. So that he's brought back, there's no real reconciliation. Chapter 15, Absalom... Four years later, he's finally had some time in person with David. And so now he's going about his business and he gets an entourage of chariots. So now everywhere Absalom goes, he's got this kind of, he looks like a prince. We're also told that he's very attractive. He then starts to sit at the gate, which the king was supposed to do, to give judgments to people as they brought their cases in. Uh, The king was supposed to be the kind of the chief justice of the land. And we read in 15.6, That as Absalom does all this, we read, And so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And after some time, he goes out and he holds a big festival. And when the trumpet blows, all the men say, Absalom, Absalom is king. And David is forced to flee. The coup is complete and he is forced to flee. So track with me. That's just a fly-by-night account. Read it for yourself. But track with me what happened here. Amnon craved his sister, and he fed that craving, and he ends up violating her. Absalom craved revenge. He fed his hate, and he ends up murdering his brother. David fed his hard-heartedness towards Absalom. Absalom craved the kingdom, and so he took it. And so what you see in narrative form from 13 through 19 is exactly what David did in chapter 11. We have sin feeding sin once again. You remember how in 2 Samuel 11, it all started with a lazy afternoon on the roof, right? Which fed a look, which fed a desire, which fed a decision, which fed an action, which led to a consequence, which fed to a cover-up, which led to a murder. And at the outset of Psalm 63, I say all of that because now we look at the outset of Psalm 63. David now understands something. It's now that David clearly sees his spiritual condition. As he's in the desert receiving his just deserts of sin, David sees what his thirsting had been all along. A thirsting for God. David is now looking back on all that has unfolded and he has seen something that has been true all along. His thirsting, being a thirst for God and a thirst that only God could satisfy. Jesus touches on this with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Do you all remember the story? When Jesus sits down at a well and a woman comes out and he begins to talk to her. And as the conversation goes on, Jesus finally tells her, Everyone who drinks of this water pointing to the well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. You remember what the woman says. She's kind of confused. She wants the water. Who would refuse it? But she thinks it's like a free water for life kind of thing. And she says, give that to me. I don't ever want to come back to this well. You remember what Jesus says? He says, why don't you go get your husband? Remember what she says, I have no husband. Oh, you're right. You've had five husbands. And the man that you're with now is not your husband. And we hear that and we're like, man, Jesus is laying the smack down. What is he doing? But you got to see what he's doing. She hears about living water and thinks that she's got um, a get water free card for the rest of her life. But Jesus is trying to get her to see, I'm talking about the thirst of your soul that you have been feeding your whole life by running into the arms of men. He's helping her because he loves her. 
You and I have an insatiable appetite for the things of God. Solomon in Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity into our hearts. And what we see over and over again through story, through experience, through Scripture, is that we spend our lives trying to satisfy that eternity. And will we ever get there? The first sign of where your soul is anchored is seeing your thirst and then asking, what am I looking to to quench it? It's the first thing. Second one is a clinging soul. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, David says, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. My soul clings to you. This is the same word in Genesis 2 when Eve is created and Adam beholds Eve and he utters the world's first love poem that this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And then we're told, the author of Genesis says, And so man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Cleave to his wife, hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What do we call icky couples, right? Or icky boyfriends and girlfriends. What do we call them? Clingy, right? David is saying, I am love struck for God. I need God. I cling to Him. My soul clings to Him. You look at verse 3. He says, um, your steadfast love is better than life. He's not saying your love is life. He's saying your love is better than life. You see, here it is. The things that we cling to. Hear this. The things that we cling to are the things that we believe give us life. That's it. The things that we cling to are the things that we believe are life-giving. David thought that he could find life in the arms of another man's wife. Not to mention he already had multiple wives. Amnon thought he could find life in the arms of his sister. Absalom thought he would find life in taking the life of his brother and taking the kingdom from his father. But all of them result in one thing. Death. All of them. Our hearts are prone to cling to idols because we believe our idols will give us life. But the truth is they give us nothing but death. If you want to identify the idols in your life, identify the things that you cannot live without. Seriously. If you want to identify the idols in your life, identify the things that you cannot live without. In other words, those things that if you were forced to give them up, you don't think you would be able to go on. What would it be like if I really was only an average student? What if I couldn't be involved in only but one or two things? What if I couldn't lose my mind to a substance every now and then? I'm just having fun. What if I couldn't be right in every discussion about anything ever? What if I couldn't abuse my sexuality or that of others to find immediate comfort and peace when I think I can? What if he didn't look at me that way? What if she didn't laugh at my jokes? What if everyone didn't think I had it all together? David fled to the arms of women 
And that pattern in his life eventually began to hurt people because he thought that is what gave him life and he would do anything to give it, get it. The only way to save him was to cripple him, and that's exactly what happens. For God to take the idols that he clung to out from under him and let him see the destruction that they were causing firsthand. Our idols eventually, no matter what, will fail us. And we will see that all the while, though we think they gave us life, they actually were shrinking them. What do you cling to? The next thing we see is a joyful soul. The third thing is a joyful soul. Look at verse 5. He says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Verse 7. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Verse 11. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him will exult. And this is what is so counterintuitive as as we work through this psalm. David is in the desert. David is suffering. David has been betrayed and overthrown by his own son. This is a monarchy. There is only one way for someone to ascend the throne, and that is for the king to be dead. And it is in that context that David says he will sing for joy. And this is the part where we look at the Bible and we say, man, the Bible is so disingenuous, right? But this is what I want you to hear. When you read the word joy in the Bible, the Bible is not telling you to put on a happy face. Joy never means that. Joy encompasses so much more than happiness. It encompasses a wholeness, a satisfaction, a fulfillment. One that is not ever derived from or dependent upon found real God-centered joy. Because God-centered joy is joy that is immune to circumstances. And it's immune from circumstances because it knows that joy cannot come from circumstances. God-centered gospel joy flourishes in hard times just as much as it does in good times. The book of Philippians is, is often referred to as the epistle of joy written by Paul. And if you just read the book of Philippians without knowing anything about it, you'd be the last person to guess that Paul had been wrongly accused and thrown in jail. And that's the situation that he writes the book from, the letter from. The epistle of joy written from prison. In the midst of persecution. Look at verse 4. David says, I will bless you as long as I live. And in the rest of the psalm, he's extolling the attributes of God that he knows will sustain him no matter the circumstances. God's power, God's glory, God's love. He knows it will sustain him, and that is the source of his joy. And the source of his joy inevitably leads to praise. The source of your joy inevitably leads to praise. So if you want to find what your joy is, you will find that which brings you joy when you see and look at that which you praise. Praise is putting words to that which you take joy in, right? Now, here's the thing. I don't know how you've ever thought about this or if you've ever thought about this. But have you ever noticed how God over and over again is commanding his people to praise him? 
He commands them to praise Him. He commands them to worship Him. He commands them to honor and give Him the honor and glory that He's due. C.S. Lewis noticed this when in his early, uh, early days as a Christian. And he writes about it. Uh, in his reflection on the Psalms, he, sa- he writes about how he struggled early as a Christian with how God commanded his own praise. How does that make sense? And this is a long quote, but it's so money. Listen to it. <laughs> this is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, you know, the most obvious fact about praise strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment or approval or of giving honor. I'd never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their partners. Readers, their, uh, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. I'd not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised most. While the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It's an appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. The Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. And in commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. That last part's in your handout if you want it. In commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. And what David is doing, even in a dark circumstance in his life, is inviting us to enjoy God. Praise is treating something as the treasure it truly is. And God wants us to praise Him not because He needs it, because He wants us to have the deepest joy that the human heart can possibly have. David had joy. David had life. David had everything. But it was the moment that he stopped believing that his joy was in God and from God, and the moment that he thought his joy was or would be derived from circumstances, that he lost all of it. And he lost himself. Where is your joy tonight? What do you talk to your friends about? What most readily comes out of your mouth? You might have a rabbit trail to follow back to your joy. The last thing here is a tender soul. We'll conclude this. Look at verses 9 and 10. Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. (laughs) The point was a tender soul, right? (laughs) And you read verse 9 and 10, you're like, man, that's not so tender. Here it is. David is comforting himself with the fact that he lives in a world of justice. Meaning, he comforts himself in knowing that God is angry at what has happened. Get this. 
He's taking comfort in the fact that God is angry with the wrong in his life. You know, there's a lot of people, a lot of churches that say, my God is not a God of anger. The God, you know, the God I believe in is not a God of anger. He's a God of love. But here's the thing. If your God is not angry, he cannot be a God of love. Because he's not a God of love, but a codependent enabler of your whims and fancies. And that's no God at all. The thing is, is that we are all desperate for a God who is powerful. We are all desperate for a God who will stand up for the oppressed and for the wronged and for the victims. Are we not? But here's the big catch, if you've been paying attention. But you remember, David is no mere victim. God said, because of your sin, David, you will not die. Because of your sin, the sword will never depart from your house. And we see that when his own son takes up his sword against his own other son, his own son's brother. Sounds familiar, right? A story back from Genesis. He also, God promised that someone would rise up against David and sleep with his wives, but he wouldn't do it in secret. He would do it before all Israel. And so we have Absalom as he takes the palace and as he takes the throne. He sets up a tent on the roof of the palace, the very same roof that David fell on. And he sleeps with David's wives before all of Israel. David had been no mere victim and he knew it. And here's the most heart-wrenching part of the story. 2 Samuel 18, we find Absalom's rebels marching out to battle against David's loyalists. And David gives these remarkable instructions given the circumstances. In 18.5, we read this. David saying, deal gently for my sake. For the young man Absalom... We read that all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. And then at the end of chapter 18, the author really doesn't give much um, detail of the battle itself. But the end of Absalom, we know. He meets his demise and as runners sprint back to David to carry him news, he receives word that his son is no more. And we read these words at the end of chapter 18. And the king was deeply moved. And he went up to the chamber over the gate. And he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So the whole sad affair ends, but it ends with a paradox. And you see, the paradox is this. We have a safe kingdom. but We have a heartbroken king. This anointed king is a suffering king, and we leave him shedding tears. But shedding tears for his own griefs and over his own guilt. And what's so amazing about the story is that that moment... That David comes nowhere closer to showing us Jesus. 
Jesus, the anointed king, the man of sorrows, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53. Acquainted with grief, but Isaiah says it's not his own grief. It's ours. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Where is your soul Anchored tonight. What are you thirsting for? What are you clinging to? What are you looking to to give you joy? Jesus, the gospel tells us, looked and beheld our thirst, our clinging to destructive idols, and our lack of joy and tenderness. And he said, would that I could die for you. He did it. He did it. Jesus is the one who had it all, but of his own will goes into the desert, into our wilderness. Why? Because he was thirsty for you, he wanted to cling to you. He wanted to have his joy fulfilled, the author of Hebrews tells us, in you. He wanted you and your love to be better than life. I just ask you one question. Will you let that sink into your soul tonight, no matter the circumstances? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cannot imagine the grief of losing a son. Even a son that had betrayed and gravely sinned against. Father, you know exactly what it's like. But not only did you lose a son, you lost a son who was perfectly obedient to your will. And you gave him up. You gave him up for rebels without a cause. That you might claim us for yourself. Father, would we hear that tonight? And would it be a source, a foundation for us of unspeakable joy? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.